yelling at kids all week. Mm. <laughs> well, it's been said that a parent can only be as happy as their least happy child. Have you ever heard that? I think there's truth to that, simply because of the tremendous personal identification that parents generally have with their children. Parents naturally feel what their children feel. So that seeing your child in pain is one of the most uh, heart-wrenching experiences of life, whether that suffering is, is physical or emotional. It's the quality we call sympathy. Sympathy. It's a word that comes from the Greek word sun, which means with, and pathos, which means feeling. Sympathy means to feel with someone, to share in their emotional state. And the word sympathy comes from two Greek words, and the word compassion comes from the same two words in Latin, compassion, to feel with. So sympathy, compassion, they both describe that quality of sharing in the feelings of another person. Sympathy is essential to meaningful human relationship. And sympathy is especially a quality of the sincere love that Paul is pointing us to in our passage this morning from Romans chapter 12. Verse 15, where he says to us that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Love is necessarily sympathetic. For in love, we, we identify with the feelings, the experiences, the well-being of others. We care about them. And it's interesting to observe at the outset that Paul assumes here that in this fallen world, we can expect both joys and sorrows. Both rejoicing and mourning. Now, yes, uh, elsewhere, Paul does say rejoice always. And we do have an ultimate reason to rejoice in whatever our circumstance, for God's eternal purpose for His people is good always. As Romans 8.28 promises, in all things, God is working for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. That is a good thing which gives us a ground for a real and ultimate hope in whatever situation we find ourselves in. But in the immediate experience that we all go through in this fallen world, we will still have reason to weep, even to mourn. We may mourn the death of someone we love, a parent or child. We may mourn the deterioration of our health, lose the, the loss of a limb or having to undergo prolonged radiation treatments. We may mourn the end of some relationship, a breakup with that person that we thought might become a husband or a wife. We may mourn the extinguishing of some hope or dream that we've been holding on to, the failure to get that new job or that promotion that we so longed for. And when someone experiences these painful losses, Paul says love's first response is to mourn with those who mourn. As someone has observed, just because Romans 8.28 comes before Romans 12.15 doesn't mean that the, that's the order in which we deal with people in grief. And when Johnny, uh, Johnny Erickson Tada was in her hospital room as a teenager after a diving accident in which she lost the use of both her arms and her legs, she found some Christians hugely irritating. She said in an interview, I had many well-meaning friends my age who said some well-meaning things, but they were uninformed. 
Because the Bible says, weep with those who weep. Many friends would say to me from Romans 8, 28, Johnny, all things fit together for pattern, for good. Or from James 1, 3, welcome this trial as a friend. Or as Romans 5 says, rejoice in your suffering. These are good and right and true biblical mandates, she said. But when your heart is being wrung out like a sponge, sometimes the 16 good biblical reasons as to why all this has happened to you sting like salt in the wound. When people are going through great trauma, great grief, they don't want answers because answers don't reach the problems where it hurts in the gut, in the heart. We remember Job's friends. They were great comfort until they tried to tell Job the reasons why he was suffering. And in our study of Job, you may recall, we emphasize that there is a place for lament in the Christian life. We can voice our grief. We can know and mourn our loss. And so Paul's words here provide the best initial response to those who are suffering. We are to share their pain. We are to mourn with and not preach to those who suffer. But life, even in a fallen world, is not all pain and suffering. We're also to rejoice with those who rejoice. And in the context of our church family, it seems we always have both joy and sorrow going on at the same time. It was just two weeks ago when we gathered, I announced both the death of Janiah Kinshap's mother in an automobile accident and Daniel McGuire and Brittany Bell's wedding engagement. And we were called both to mourn with Janiah and to rejoice with Daniel and Brittany. You see, that's what love does. If it is to have this quality of sympathy, it rejoices with those who rejoice. It mourns with those who mourn. And it does this because the love of God, revealed in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, demonstrates just this kind of love. We see it in Matthew 9, 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he felt their pain. He had compassion on them, we read, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And we see this sympathy supremely when Jesus came to the tomb with his friend Lazarus who had died four days before. And, 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 and he, he, he met Lazarus' sister Mary. We read that when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled, and he too wept. He mourned with those who mourned. Jesus first saw people in their pain, and then he entered into their experience. He shared their sorrow. And I want you to know, Jesus sees us. He knows our heartaches and trials. The prophet Isaiah spoke of him as one who took up our pain and bore our suffering. Such is the love of our God. And that's why the author of Hebrews can encourage us in those words we read earlier. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. You see, our God is not distant. He's not aloof. He's not sitting on some heavenly deck chair watching us squirm in agony in this wicked earthly life. No, in Christ, he himself has entered into our experience. He shares our suffering and our pain, and he has taken that pain unto himself. 
This is the kind of God that we as Christians worship. You see, in becoming incarnate, taking humanity into himself, God, as the Word become flesh, has taken into himself the pain of human suffering. God has chosen not to be a God apart from humanity, apart from the suffering of humanity. You see, his is a sympathetic love. His love flows through a great high priest who knows us and who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and who shares our joys and sorrows. And so as we enter into this great love of God, we are to rejoice with those who rejoice. We are to mourn with those who mourn. Now, it is interesting that the notion of sympathy is much more often associated with mourning than it is with rejoicing. Your common definition of sympathy reflects that. Sympathy is defined as, quote, feelings of pity and sorrow for someone else's misfortune. And the word uh, sympathy is synonymous with pity, commiseration, condolence, solace, and comfort. Uh, sympathy cards are meant to convey words of comfort for those who are experiencing pain. And I think it's true. We generally find it easier to share feelings of pain that we see in others than to share feelings of joy. Maybe that's why the saying about parents I started with was phrased the way it was. It says a parent can only be as happy as their least happy child, not a parent will be as happy as their most happy child. It is much easier for a picture of a suffering child to elicit sympathetic feelings of sorrow than for a picture of a happy child to elicit sympathetic feelings of joy. Though sometimes, if we are honest, we can have an opposite reaction. The painful failure or fall of someone we don't particularly like can elicit a secret delight. The Germans have a word for that. It's called schadenfreude, the pleasure I get from another person's misfortune. But much more common is the other opposite, the displeasure I get from another person's good fortune. And there's a word for that too. It's called envy. Envy. And let's face it, it is envy that often keeps us from rejoicing with those who rejoice. It can be very hard for a person who longs to be married to rejoice at the news of a friend's engagement. It's a challenge for the couple longing for a child to rejoice at another couple's birth announcement. Or when a friend gets that promotion that you desperately wanted, do you rejoice with them? You see, envy is essentially a competition. It, it, it flows from a view of the world in which your social standing, your happiness, even your value as a person is measured in comparison to others. So when someone you compare yourself with in some way goes up, you automatically go down. And when we're gripped by envy, we want to bring honor to ourselves comparatively by seeing our rivals dishonored. Their good fortune, their happiness somehow diminishes mine. Well, the writer Gore Vidal is quoted as saying, every time a friend succeeds, I die a little. Haven't you felt it? I think about some acquaintance of yours, maybe a friend in high school, maybe you traveled in the same circles, you were social equals, but now you discover that that person has risen far above you in wealth or social standing, career achievement. You look at their Facebook page and instead of rejoicing at their good fortune, 
when you see the pictures of their new house, their fancy vacations, you see their announcement of some promotion, you feel this pool of discomfort or sadness or even resentment. As I said, envy is essentially about competition. It, it sees others as my rivals for something I value, something that somehow serves as a source of joy and personal honor. And envy arises when we feel we have to merit some recognition. We have to rise above others to establish our significance as a human being. And envy comes from the fear that there is only so much honor, so much good fortune to go around. And so any good that goes to someone else means less for me. Now, Susan and I used to be very sensitive about this when our boys were younger because of this very natural feeling. Brothers tend to be very competitive, so we were very cautious in praising one of them in front of the others because we knew of their tendency to see the praise of one of their brothers as a disparagement of themselves. Now, we didn't want them to feel that way, but and I think by God's grace, uh, they have matured and they've basically gotten over that. Uh, now, you see, when we're cut off from the true source of our value, our worth, our significance, that, that significance that we all crave, and the deepest source of our joy, which comes through a relationship with God, then we have to find it in other people. And in our fight for honor and happiness, other people become rivals to us in that struggle. And in our fallen state, we, we revert to that state of nature, the survival of the fittest. Life becomes a competition for limited resources. It's a zero-sum game. Your success is my failure. There are winners and there are losers, and we don't want to be a loser. And that's why there's something very natural about envy that is natural to sinful human beings in a fallen world. And that seems to be Paul's assumption when he addresses the Corinthian Christians to that factious church who were arguing amongst themselves, he says in 1 Corinthians 3, 3, you are still worldly. For since there is envy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans, he says? You see, Paul is saying that the gospel ought to make a difference in their lives. Envy just doesn't make sense in the light of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. No, you are no longer mere humans, he says. You are new creatures in Christ, and you are being recreated into his glorious image. So the gospel tells us that our worth, our true worth in the sight of God, isn't based on any comparison with anybody else. It is absolute. We are valuable. Our lives matter because God says it so. He confers value on our lives. And Paul says every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms is now ours in Christ Jesus. He values us by creating us in his own image. He values us even more by choosing to set his love upon us. And he loves us so much that he gave us his own son to redeem us from our sin, to draw us into a relationship with the God who is love. And because our value doesn't come from within us, it can't be earned. And because our value doesn't come from within us, it can't be lost. It's an unconditional love that God lavishes upon us. It is secure. It is protected. And it's a love we come to know in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ who loved us and gave his life for us. And this love, you see, is not limited. There's not some finite amount of God's love, like bitcoins or something. It's not as, as if God's love for me 
diminishes God's love for you. No, it's an infant love. And it's a love that's experienced all the more as it is shared. So you see, the gospel is the key to overcoming this envy that we often feel. The gospel allows you to know who you are in your union with Christ. It displays God's great love for you. Through the gospel, you can know that all the honor, all the glory, all the joy that you could ever need, it's already ours in our union with Jesus Christ. And so when it comes to establishing our worth as human beings, we need to get out of this competition game altogether. That's the way the kingdom of nature may work, but not the kingdom of God. And that's not the world we're now called to live in by the grace of our God. And that, I think, is what makes it possible for us to rejoice with those who rejoice without falling into that mode of resentful envy. The gospel enables us to move away from what I call the comparative self. The comparative self. Now, it's helpful to see that when we enter into this new life of Christ and start loving others as Christ loved us, we don't stop loving ourselves. What happens is that the self that we love is enlarged. The self we love doesn't compete with other selves. It doesn't exclude other selves. No, it includes them. Now, there's a very natural sense in which this extension of ourselves happens in marriage. Uh, the Bible says that in marriage, a man and a woman become one. Paul expounds this in Ephesians 5. He says, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it. And so when I got married... I can say that myself was enlarged. Myself now includes my wife, and herself now includes me. We are united such that when I love her, I am, in a sense, at the same time, loving myself. Her happiness is my happiness. Her sorrow is my sorrow. My self-interest, so to speak, is not just about myself. Life is no longer just about me. Now, I think we've all experienced this expansion of the self in some way. We, we experience it in the love of a family. Uh, this notion of the expanded self explains that saying that I began with about the happiness of a parent being related to that of their children. I realized that there was a sense in which myself includes my children, my sons. I identify myself with their interests. I don't compete with them. I don't care for myself at their expense. No, I share their joys. I share their sorrows. Their happiness is my happiness. I remember when they were playing sports. I mean, I think I got more nervous than they ever did. And there's a sense in which we can experience something of this enlarged self when we identify with a sports team. My team's victory is counted as my victory. I rejoice when my team wins. I mourn when my team loses. We may also identify with our nation. I mean, if the U.S. women's soccer team wins the World Cup today, we can feel a tinge of pride, can't we? As if we ourselves did something to earn it. Our self is expanded to include something, someone beyond ourselves. And this is what happens with sympathy. 
We're sharing the feelings of others. We're putting ourselves in their shoes. We're seeing the world through their eyes. We are making their pain, their joy, our own. The 18th century pastor, Jonathan Edwards, speaks of this in a wonderful way. He, he's talking about this principle of solidarity. Uh, the way that self-interest becomes love when the self is expanded to include others. He writes this, Selfishness is a principle which does, as it were, confines a man's heart to himself. Love enlarges it and it extends it to others. A man's self is, as it were, extended and enlarged by love. Others, so far as they are loved, do, as it were, become parts of himself. So that wherein their interest is promoted, he looks on his own as promoted. And wherein their interest is touched, his is touched. And Edwards goes on to talk about this is exactly what Jesus has done in the gospel. He continues, such was Christ's love to us that he was pleased in some respects to look on us as himself. By his love to men, he has so espoused them as in marriage and united his heart to them that he is pleased in many respects to look on them as himself. His elect are from all eternity dear to him as the apple of his eye. He looked upon them so much as himself that he looked on their concerns as his concerns, their interests as his own. And he's made their guilt his by a gracious assumption of it to himself that it might be looked upon as his by divine imputation. And his love has sought to unite them so to himself as to make them, as it were, members of himself so that they are his own flesh and his bone. Again, Edwards here is simply echoing what Paul says in Ephesians 5, isn't he? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body. But he feeds and care for, cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. You see, Jesus so identified himself with his church that in loving us, in a sense, he was loving himself as his self was enlarged to include his church. And doesn't that now speak to us? And Edwards draws the application here. Consider how, by your profession, you are united to Christ and to your fellow Christians. You are one body, Christ the head and Christians the members. So shouldn't ourselves be enlarged to include one another? Shouldn't your well-being be my concern? And shouldn't my well-being be your concern? Doesn't it make sense that we would mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice if we are indeed one body? So if I love you, I'm loving myself. My, in love, you see, my happiness is linked with yours. And again, this is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 12, which we read earlier. Just as a body, through the one has many parts, and all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. We're all baptized by the one Spirit to form one body. There are many parts, but one body, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, Paul says, 
every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. And so we're to enter into the love of God found in the gospel. Let yourself include Christ who redeemed you, your fellow believers in his body for whom Christ died, yes, even your neighbor, whoever it may be, who shares the same divine image. But let's face it, sympathy doesn't come naturally. Uh, There's a sense in which by nature we are all on the autism spectrum. We're closed in upon ourselves. Sympathy takes effort. It requires attention to other people. We must first see them as real people with real feelings just like ours. We must see them as Jesus did. And as you read the gospel so often, it talks about Jesus saw the person. He looked at the crowd and then he felt compassion for them. And so in this church family, let's rejoice with each other's joys. Let's celebrate each other's successes. Let's honor each other's victories as if they were our own. Celebrating graduations and weddings and births and promotions and school and promotional awards and sports wins, whatever they may be, let's rejoice as if they were our own. For in a sense, they are our own. But let's also share in each other's sorrows. May we come alongside those who grieve, send notes and cards, offer assistance, uh, bring a meal, let people know that they do not suffer alone. You see, love recognizes that life is not a zero-sum game. And since God is love, there's an infinite amount of love to go around. In fact, the more I give it away, the more of it I receive. I'm not diminished by the success of others in love. I can rejoice with them for my success, my honor, my worth comes from a God with a limitless supply of love to give away. And when people suffer loss, I can be an instrument of God's love toward them and mourn with them. For in Christ, God shares in my life. God mourns with me. Sincere love. This love that Paul is expounding in Romans chapter 12, this love displayed in the gospel, this love is sympathetic. It rejoices with those who rejoice. It mourns with those who mourn. May it be true of us. Let's pray. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table, I invite our servers to come forward. Let's reflect for a moment on this wonderful gospel love, this sympathetic love that we've seen in Jesus Christ who comes to share in our joys and share in our sorrows. He knows us. He sees us. Let's thank Him for it. Lord, help us to enter into this this love, this gospel love, this love that flows from the God who is love, this love that's been demonstrated in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, this love that is conveyed to us and empowered in our lives by your spirit of love. 
And Lord, may we display this gospel love in such a way that, that people around us see something that draws them, that, that in some way shows the beauty of Jesus in our world. May it be so, we pray, through Christ our Lord. Amen.